Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. D, this week, we are going back into 90s grunge and tackling Stone Temple Pilots. I am standing like a loan that somebody gave me because I needed a house. <laughs> I don't know. It just came out. I That's don't know. terrible. <laughs> That's terrible. We're going to need a drug test on mile three. Welcome, everybody, to the Shirley You Can't Be Serious podcast. We are here to compare Stone Temple Pilots' core to Alice in Chains' dirt. If you missed our last two episodes, we covered the history of Alice in Chains, beginning to bitter, bitter end. Then we went through dirt, track by track. And today, we are here to talk about the history of Stone Temple Pilots, and we will be covering core track by track with our dear friend and longtime supporter. Order, Brad Moore. I know. I'm excited to meet Brad, and he's a big Stone Temple Pilots guy. I know you're a big Stone Temple Pilots guy. Everybody, it seems like in the 90s, was like handed a copy of Core and said, you must have this to enter college. Yes. I wasn't in college yet at that point, but I was definitely loving Core. Before we get rolling, I want to say thank you to our executive producer for this episode, my good friend, Mr. Kevin Davis, who I mentioned just two episodes ago as a guy who's been a longtime follower of us. He hit our Patreon page, joined in the support. Thank you so much, Kevin. You are the executive producer of this episode. Guys, if you want to be an executive producer of our episodes, it's so easy. You just go to patreon.com backslash Shirley Podcast. That's S-U-R-E-L-Y P-O-D-C-A-S-T. And you can, for as little as $5 a month, join in our Patreon family. You become an executive producer. If you go higher on our tiers, you might get some special gifts, which are coming to Kevin at this point. And And most importantly, you get access to our super secret, super fun, special episodes for Patreon members only. I don't even know if there's anything you can buy for $5 anymore. No. There's literally nothing you can buy for $5 anymore. Everything costs more than $5. I'll tell you what you can get for $5. (laughs) You can get extra episodes, one bonus episode a month, and we're covering one-hit wonders from the 80s and 90s. We're bouncing all around. We've got kind of a library going now. It's pretty cool. Yeah, the next one we have coming up is Simple Minds, Don't You Forget About Me. That one's going to be epic. I can't wait to cover that one. If you want to hear it, be sure and go visit our Patreon page and sign up for membership. If it's too much for you right now, no problem. Just hit that follow button or hit that subscribe button on your podcast app. And if you are so inclined, give us a five-star review. And if you're not inclined, give us a five-star review anyway. If you want to throw in a cool review in there, you'll be entered into a contest to win one of our special custom engraved Ozarka tumbler cups. If you like what you hear, tell somebody. Exactly. Love it. Love you guys. Thank you for all the support that you've given us. Jason, tell me the first time you remember hearing something about STP. My first time was when Plush went next level the summer of 93, right? Yeah. So I know Sex Type Thing was their first single and their first video, mm-hmm. but I, it just, I mean, I, it just kind of bypassed me. I wasn't that familiar with it. But mm-hmm. then every time I turned on the radio the summer of 93, it was Plush, 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 Plush.
I talked to my brother this weekend, just kind of called out of the blue, and I said, hey, you know, we're going to be covering STP, and I can remember the first time that I heard anything about STP, I was riding in the car with my brother, and he said, I heard this Pearl Jam sounding band, (laughs) and I was like, was it Pearl Jam? And he said, no, it was a Pearl Jam sounding band, and I was like... Okay. Yeah. And within the week, I had heard whatever the song was. Whether it was plush or sex type thing, I don't remember. But I was like, oh, this is the band. This is the band that he is referring to. But it wasn't long before. I was at Hastings picking out my own. Actually, I think this might have been a BMI. I might have gotten this through the BMI. Columbia Columbia House. House. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's funny because I had Columbia House and it could have easily been that for me as well. For all I know, I might have gotten Core and Dirt on the same... (laughs) One CD for one penny order. That's a heck of an order right there. Yeah. These guys rolled through Tulsa, Oklahoma. I remember they played the Zoo Amphitheater. Mm-hmm. I didn't go, but I remember wanting to go. Yeah. I, I, I never saw these guys in concert. I was not a big concert goer when I was a kid, but I would have loved to have seen them back in the heyday. Yeah. Okay, D. This is Stone Temple Pilots' Core versus Alice in Chains' Dirt. Core is Stone Temple Pilots' first album. Dirt is Alice in Chains' second album. But they both came out on the same day in 1992. 30 years ago this month, these albums were released. Do these albums sound 30 years old to you? Well, no. (laughs) No. But it's interesting. Having listened to interviews that Scott Weiland gave with Howard Stern, it gave me an appreciation for what we had in the 90s that basically after about early 2000s, you didn't have anymore. And that was that you went to Hastings and you bought an album or you ordered BMI CDs or tapes or whatever. Columbia House was a cheap and beautiful thing that doesn't exist anymore because people don't buy albums anymore. I know. And so not only are people not buying records, that's a thing, but because of that, record companies have lost money, which means we have a decrease in quality of music that's being produced because you don't have the money to create a big production. So you use cheaper ways to do things, computers and such. And because of that, those artists of that time, like Scott Weiland and like some of those other guys, in order to maintain that lifestyle that they had grown to appreciate in the 90s, when all of a sudden the 2000s rolls along and nobody's buying music anymore, we're all downloading it, napstering it or whatever, then suddenly you have to go tour substantially more than you did before just to maintain your standard of living. And if, like Scott Weiland, you've been through a couple of divorces, you've got to do it just to be able to pay your child support. Which he did not do. Well, yeah, it was troubling. His money went elsewhere, sadly. Well, yeah. Hey, you know you mentioned Napster and you mentioned Pearl Jam. Mm -hmm. I thought this was funny. The song Creep by Stone Temple Pilots. There's some sort of problem with the naming of the songs. They can't ever pick the right title. (laughs) Because every time they choose a title, it's not really in the song. But I thought it was funny. On Napster, the song Creep uh-huh. is most commonly referred to as Half the Man I Used to Be by Nirvana. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny because Radiohead, we mentioned last time, Radiohead had a song called Creep as well, which was Lane Staley's favorite song of that time period. He said, mate, you know, this is the best song that I've heard in three years when it first came out. It's a good song. And it was a constant source of confusion for me of, which Creep are we about to listen to? (laughs) Is it the Radiohead version or is it the Stone Temple Pilots version? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Well, at least they say Creep in the song. (laughs) Right. Right. Radiohead, yes. Put it in there. Right. Okay. So my history starts in 1953. What? 
1953, a company called Chemical Compounds was founded by three businessmen, Charles Dwight Liggett, Jim Hill, and Robert Dehart. With $3,000 startup capital in St. Joseph, Missouri, they started the company Chemical Compounds. Now, the next year, actor Scott Marlowe made his acting debut, 1954, made his acting debut in a movie called Attila, starring Mr. Anthony Quinn and Miss Sophia Loren. By 1960, he was in a movie called The Subterraneans with actor Roddy McDowell. Fright Night. There you go. Throwback to our Fright Night episode. Very good. He was also in many episodes of Have Gun, Will Travel. I'm not going to sing the song for you today. Go listen to Stand By Me if you want to hear it. <laughs> so after 1960, the next year, Scott Marlowe had his first little brother, whose name was Dean, because Scott Marlowe's given name was Ronald Richard DeLeo. Wow. And his... Very much younger half-brother, Dean, was born in 1961. Five years later, he had another half-brother who they named Robert. That's Robert and Dean DeLeo. A little later on that year, a guy named Eric Kretz was born. And the following year, we saw the birth of Mr. Scott Wyland. Fantastic. I thought you were going all the way back to like the birth of heroin or something like this. I was like, 1953? What are we talking about here? <laughs> well, the chemical compound company, it's going to come up later, but not now. Just save it. Put a pin in it. Think about it. I know where it's going to go, but you may not. Listener, you'll have to hold on and see where it comes back up again. Okay, I am at your feet, Dee. Lead us down <laughs> this trail to where we're going. Okay, so Scott Weiland was not born Scott Weiland. He was born Scott Klein. His parents ultimately got divorced. His mother remarried. He was adopted by his stepfather, whose last name was Weiland, and that's how he became Scott Weiland. Yes. He lived in Ohio. The DeLeo brothers grew up in New Jersey. Eric Kretz grew up in California. But ultimately, Scott decided to go out to California, and Robert decided to go out to California. Uh-huh. And they started, you know, seeing girls, going to concerts. Well, sure. And they go to a Black Flag concert, and they run into each other, and they're like, oh, hey, how's it going? Yeah, good. And they start talking about their girlfriend. And it turns out, it's the same girl. <laughs> I hate it when that happens. <laughs> well, it ends up that I think they liked each other better than they really liked her. She moves back to Texas, and so they roommate together in her old apartment. Well, really? Yes. Wow. And since Scott's a singer and Robert is a guitarist and a bass player, they decide they're going to put together a band. Hey, before you get there, before you get there, I just want to mention this really quick. I found this fascinating. Scott Weiland in high school was an athlete. Oh, yeah. You sent me a picture of him like he's a quarterback. and I sent you his football picture. Yes. It's fantastic. And it's He wasn't like the last guy off the bench. He was the quarterback. Yeah. He played football. Mm-hmm. He played soccer. Yeah. He wrestled. Yeah. Played volleyball. You sent a picture of him in the group text that we share with James Buckley and David Wright. Right. And you're like, who's this guy? And David Wright said, is it Jack Wagner? And I thought, yeah, he's right. That's Jack <laughs> Wagner. Like, he looks like a soap opera star. Very young Scott Weiland looks like a young James Wagner. Flashback to our Girls, Girls, Girls <laughs> episode, Jack Wagner. Yeah. But he does. I mean, he looks athletic. He's muscled up, mm-hmm. and he looks like a football player. Yeah. He changes that look. He changes his look over and over again as his career progresses. He does. He does. So when he's a young man, uh-huh. he's an athlete. Yeah. He's going here and there. Yeah. And on the weekends, he's starting to go to parties. 
High schoolers do that. They binge drink on the weekends. Except for Scott, it starts to have a obsessive pull on him mm-hmm. to where he thinks about it Monday, thinks about it Tuesday, thinks about it Wednesday, and has to kind of make it to Friday. Yeah, That leads to weed and then cocaine, and his parents find those little white bundles in his bedroom one day, and he's off to rehab for the first time, age 16. 16. Yeah. So I learned in this process a very tragic story. Apparently, and possibly, he was dealing with a prior event that had occurred about four years before. Right. That he had, according to him in his book, suppressed this memory until he's in rehab and was going through therapy. But apparently at 12 years old, again, gets invited to like a barn to you know, hang out like you do out in Ohio. And it's played, spin the bottle with some girls and a mason jar full of liquor. And this older, you know, high school senior who's 20 at the time shows up and starts having relations with one of the girls right there in front of everyone. And then just within the week says, hey, you want to come hang out? Scott goes with him over to his house and he is raped by this 20-year-old high school senior. That is tragic. I could see myself becoming a drinker and a drugger if that had happened to me. And a violent, angry young man. Yeah. Okay, when to bring it down. Actually, I did hear him describe it as quick and unpleasant. At least it was quick, I guess. At the very least, yes. So, Robert and Scott are living together. They've decided to put a band together. They get a couple of childhood friends to join the band, a guy named Corey Hickok and a guy named David Allen. Yep. But they don't live up to snuff. And while Robert and Scott are at a concert, they are listening to this band, and they're like, man, I can't hear anything but the drums. This guy is incredible. Right. That guy was Eric Kretz. They said, we need to get him. They got him kicked out the other two guys and said, okay, we need a guitar player. And Robert says, you know what? Let's give my brother Dean a call. You mentioned the fact that Scott Weiland's childhood friends are in this band. They're just not quite as good as they need to be. And so one of the songs that they had been working on very early on in their days as a band was Piece of Pie. So they had been working on it, and it had guitars, and Corey Hickok was playing the guitar. Wasn't a great guitar player, so Dean actually came to help out on that song in particular. Uh-huh. And when he showed up to help, it became obvious that Dean is much better. Yeah. And so when Dean showed up, he inadvertently kicked him out of the band, and he said that uh, he has since forgiven him and that he's a sweet guy. So, oh, well, that's nice. Yeah. It seems to me that Robert is probably the most driven of the group. Right. I heard Scott talk about it. Robert would have a beer, you know, once or twice a month, maybe. But he said that while he was doing drugs and STP, Dean was doing them with him. Dean was a heavy drug addict as well. Wow. But as they pointed out, it's a little different to play the guitar than it is to sing. You've got a human instrument when you're the singer, and if you're off, you can't tune it. You know, there's no key to change. So it's a little bit difficult, which is probably why he ultimately had more pressure from the rest of the band and why ultimately he got the boot. Right. So originally, they weren't even called Stone Temple Pilots. Really? This blew me away, right? Okay, tell me about that. Okay, so their original name was called Mighty Joe Young. Like the old giant gorilla movie. Yeah, exactly. Okay. All right. You see that one with Bill Paxton? I did not. I saw the old black and white one, though. Okay. 
So, like, weeks before Cora's coming out, they realize that there's this guy in Chicago who's got the copyright to this name. He has the rights to the name Mighty Joe Young. Yes. Blues musician. Yes, that's right. Yes. So they have to come up with a new name. So they do. That, my friend, brings me to the chemical compound company that started back in 1953. (laughs) Okay, this is great. So. Good job. The chemical compound company's sole product was an oil treatment simply called STP. The name was derived from scientifically treated petroleum in 1961- same year that Dean was born, the company was acquired by the Studebaker-Packard Corporation, and they changed the meaning of STP to Studebaker-Tested Products. But the CEO of Studebaker at the time said, you know what, I think this product could outpace Studebaker. And so he recruited this guy named Andy Granatelli, and he made him the CEO of the STP company to help raise the product's image. The way that he did that is he became the public face of STP and he would go to races with a white suit emblazoned with a red oval with the logo STP. That STP logo became a fashion go-to for skaters and BMXers and other guys my age in the late 80s, early 90s. Absolutely. And so when these guys find out they can't be Mighty Joe Young, they say, we love STP. Let's just come up with three words that give us the initials STP. That's a fascinating story, right? Right. So here's what they come up with. Shirley Temple's p- <laughs> <laughs> Once again, a name you can't use at Walmart. (sighs) Yeah. They also thought of sticky toilet paper. (laughs) Um, Ultimately, they got really close. They said, how about Stereo Temple Pirates? Yes. And it was very close, but the record company was like, pirates with the music? I don't know. And so they said, well, what about pilots? And someone else said, I like the idea of stone better than stereo. So there you go. Stone Temple Pilots. Once again, grab this name at the last second before the album came out. All because of chemical compound company STP oil. I like this name better than Mighty Joe Young. Oh, yeah. You know? It doesn't, I mean, M-J-Y doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well as STP <laughs> That's does. true. That's true. So these guys started playing together as Mighty Joe Young for the longest time in San Diego, and they would go up and down the coast. They ended up playing at the Whiskey in L.A. Yep. And very quickly were discovered. And this is about 1992 when we've had Nirvana's Nevermind has come out, Pearl Jam's 10 has come out, and the record company is seeing these guys on stage and saying, these guys are obviously well within this new alternative music that's happening. Even though they were not a Seattle band, they're like, We can see the dollar signs here. Good-looking lead singer, rough, grungy sound. Let's sign these guys up. This is what I didn't know, or at least didn't realize at the time. Mm -hmm. I was well aware of the Seattle sound. Yeah. 
But the flavor of the month kind of in the early 90s was San Diego. So record companies went like flocked to San Diego to find the next big thing. And even though these guys, it's kind of misnomer that they were from San Diego. They're actually an L.A. band. But Mm -hmm. record companies were hot on the trail of San Diego bands. I'd never even heard of that before. Yeah. So ultimately, they signed with Atlantic Records on April 1st, 1992. Yep. Dean has a day job still, you know? <laughs> yes. I mean, they're not making it enough as, as musicians to live, so he's got a day job. He goes to tell them, he's like, hey, guys, I've got to leave. I'm, I've signed a record deal. And they didn't believe him because it was April 1st. <laughs> they're like, ah, hilarious. Back to work. <laughs> I was like, no, really, guys? Really? Okay, guys, see you later. Yeah. That's crazy, man. You know, during this time, Robert worked at a guitar store. Yeah, he worked with Schechter Guitar Research, which was a, it started off as a repair shop back in the 70s, got bought by a Texas company in the mid 80s, went to Texas for a while, and then a Japanese company bought them, moved them back out to California. That's when Robert started working with them. And he built the prototype of what would later become his signature model when he was working there. It was the Schechter Model T, and it was his primary live instrument while he was with Stone Temple Pilots. Wow. So he worked at this guitar store. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, did I give you a little bit more there? <laughs> so anyway, back to the story. No, that's, that's great. That's great. Yeah, that's yeah. way more than I had. So he would work at the guitar store, mm-hmm. and across the street, Scott was working at, like, parking cars and driving people around. Models. And yeah, he, was, he, he drove the models around, right? Yes, he did. Not a bad gig if you no, can get it. Right. And so apparently Scott would have these little downtimes, and he would come across the street, and he would tell Robert, he'd say, hey, got this idea. What do you think? Mm-hmm. I am smelling like a rose. You know, what do you think about that? Okay. <laughs> right. And he said, in fact, they wrote the song Creep in Robert's back seat while parked at the guitar store. Yeah. He was thinking about how he was rejected a lot as a youth and felt like he was a creep a lot of the time. By the way, the guy that they opened for at the Whiskey mm-hmm. was Henry Rollins. You know what band he was in prior to the Henry Rollins band? Tell me. Black Flag. There you go. How about that? Yeah. They, it comes full circle. It sure does. And as a matter of fact, another band that they opened for was Electric Love Hogs. The guitarist for Electric Love Hogs was Dave Kushner, who was the founder of Velvet Revolver, where Scott Weiland would go after leaving STP. And where he was eventually fired from. It's been long since you it's all part of the same story. Yep. Okay. So it's summer of 1992. They have got to come out with a debut album. We know that it comes out September of that year, but they've got to get started recording. Right. So what do you do when you have to record an album? You hire a producer. Let me tell you about Mr. Brendan O'Brien, okay? Yeah, yeah. So Brendan O'Brien started off playing in bands in Atlanta. One band was called The Pranks. The other one was called Samurai Catfish. Samurai Catfish. Samurai Catfish. What a fantastic name, right? <laughs> and so he he had a bit of success. He was a good musician, but he had a kid early on. So he was a dad who needed to take care of a family, so he needed a paying gig. Right. And so he was always kind of fascinated by the name that would show on producer lines on his albums that he loved, like the Beatles or Led Zeppelin. You know, he sees Jimmy Page as producer. He's like, how did he make that sound? He, so he kind of becomes fascinated with this idea of being a producer and an engineer. And because he needs money, he works cheap. 
and he became known as the guy who, if you were with a small record company and you need an album for 1500 bucks, he was your guy to go to. Interesting. Okay. So he does some engineering, does some mixing, and, and in 1989, he gets together with this kind of unknown band to do engineering for them. Their name was The Black Crows, and the album was Shake Your Moneymaker. And he goes from Mr. Guy You Need Cheap to A Guy in Demand. I love that album. Of course. We've got to cover that album, Fantastic album, right? There is not a bad song on that album. Let me just touch on some of the the albums that this guy has been involved with, right? So he did Black Crow's. He was an engineer for Black Crow's Shake Your Moneymaker. He mixed Pearl Jam's 10. Yep. He was the mixer for Temple of the Dog by Temple of the Dog. You ready for this? Yes. He was the engineer for Red Hot Chili Peppers, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, which we know came out the same time as Nevermind and 10. Huge. He did the Black Crow's follow-up album, and then he does Stone Temple Pilots. You know, when you said that, there is a song on core that reminds me of Remedy by the Black Crows. Yeah? We'll talk about it when we get there. So on the song Wet My Bed, yes. at the very end, you hear a voice come in. Yes. He's like, okay, what are we going to do now? That's him. That's <laughs> Brendan O'Brien. If you, you know, you've got probably no image in your head, you, but you probably have seen him. If you saw the Bob Dylan Unplugged on MTV, yes. he's the guy playing the Hammond organ. Okay. He also played keyboards for Pearl Jam and Neil Young on their Mirrorball tour in Europe. More recently, like 20 years ago, he won the Grammy for The Rising by Bruce Springsteen. Throwback to our Bruce Springsteen Springsteen episode. In 2015, he produced Higher Truth, which was Chris Cornell's final album before his death. Interesting. Interesting. And and most recently, he's done Power Up by ACDC. Came out in 2020. Same year that we did our ACDC versus (laughs) Guns N' Roses Appetite for Destruction. Hey, Back in Black versus Appetite for Destruction. Come on. That's that's a really good matchup. So this is the guy who is primarily responsible for the sound of the music of the 90s. And the thing that all of these songs seem to share is this piccolo snare. It's this really, and I can remember, I can remember early 90s is when I was in a high school band talking to my drummer about stuff, and I'm like, can you can you make the drum sound more high pitch and more poppy? Right. It's that piccolo snare that has that high-pitched kind of echoey sound, and Brendan O'Brien is the guy who's responsible for that. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, everybody, including my brother, thought, these guys sound like Pearl Jam. Right. Well, Brendan O'Brien produced all of the Pearl Jam albums except for 10, and he produced Core. So he's the one tie between these two bands. (laughs) It's just interesting because this is a guy who, until we did the research on this, I had no idea who he was. Right. But he's the guy who gave us the sound of the 90s. And he talked about how in the 80s, Things had gotten so hi-fi, and people were done with that. And so the 90s, he was the perfect guy to come in and do lo-fi sound. You know who else thought they sounded like Pearl Jam? I hate to keep bringing this up. Yeah, but go ahead. 
David Spade on Saturday Night Live. I've heard the episode. <laughs> He's let's, like, let's listen to it here. And in music, Stone Temple Pilots were on tour. They were great the first time I saw them when they were called Pearl Jam. David Spade, <laughs> hilarious. Yeah. But, uh, Beavis and Butthead, too. <laughs> yeah. Scott Weiland really bristled at that. I'm sure. I mean, really bristled at it. Yeah. So the guy from the Butthole Surfers, mm-hmm. who they toured with, the last date of this concert was when Scott Weiland started heroin for the very first time. Right. But the guy from Butthole Surfers was on with Ricky Rackman on MTV, and the guy from Butthole Surfers said, you know who they sound like, don't you? And Ricky Rackman said, who don't they sound like? And because of that statement, Scott Weiland was super pissed at MTV. Yeah. Wouldn't come on any of their stuff. They came to Ricky Rackman, and they were like, you have got to go and apologize to him. Yeah, and it's interesting because Headbangers Ball is where you get the live version of Plush, which, I mean, that's my favorite version of the song. Yeah. I love that. Well, that got as much radio play as anything. You I know, because it's fantastic. It's fantastic. Yeah. Although I like the uh, I like the real one better. I know you do. <laughs> okay, so we need to do our Shirley Showcase now. We have our dear friend and fellow podcaster, Mr. Jeff Johnson, who is going to give us his thoughts on the, this matchup. Now, Jeff is a little younger than us, so this was more like right in his sweet spot, I think. Yeah, I can't wait to hear what Jeff has to say. Jeff has knocked it out of the park in all the Shirley Showcases so far. So, Jeff, no pressure. Here you go. Hello, Shirley fans. This is Jeff Johnson from A Film by Podcast, and I'm here to do a quick set before Dee and Jason take the stage. In 1992, Alice in Chains and Stone Temple Pilots both put out albums that would ultimately become their highest selling. I want to offer a final judgment on what I feel is the best album, though. The first time I heard Sex Type Thing on my local radio station, I knew two things. I wanted to hear it again, and I wanted to hear what else do these guys got. With their debut album, Core, the Stone Temple Pilots deliver a message about social injustice. With songs like Naked Sunday and Wicked Garden, they shed some light on the hypocrisies of our values and some of our beliefs. Meanwhile, hard-hitting tracks like Dead and Bloated gave you an idea of what kind of attitude this band had, while Where the River Goes ensures that they know how to close an album out the right way. As for Alice in Chains, we knew what to expect and we wanted more of it. And they provided with their follow-up dirt. Songs like Wood and Down in a Hole have a way of just pulling you in. Your eyes are closed and you're kind of swaying with the music. Lane's vocals are more like a lullaby beckoning you to come with him on a journey. But it's a dark journey into the depths of addiction, self-harm, with little reconciliation. Ultimately, choosing the best album is very difficult, but not impossible. As for myself, I'm gonna go with the one I feel I can play from start to finish, and more importantly, sing along with. And that is why I'm gonna go with Core. Jason, D, roll out of that birthday deathbed, have a piece of pie, and find out where the river goes. I'm Jeff Johnson from A Film by Podcast. Thank you. Good night. Hey, knocked it out of the park again. That's fantastic. I love it. So, obviously, he is a big STP fan. Right. That's coming strong with core. Yeah. Jeff, thank you so much. Jeff is a great friend of ours. Go check out his podcast, A Film by Podcast. Well, 
I think it's time to jump into the album. That brings us to September 29th, 1992, the release of Core and Dirt. But next week, we're going to go track by track through each one of these songs off of Core. Yeah, with our good friend and supporter, Brad Moore. Thank you guys for listening to the whole episode. We look forward to seeing you again when we go through this album track by track. And give you our final judgment as to which of these two albums, in our opinion, is the best. Is it Dirt? Is it Core? Tune in next week to find out. Sounds good. We'll see you guys then.